You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we talk to Vivian Pei, the Academy Chair of Asia's 50 Best Bars. We talk about her journey shifting from business studies into the culinary world, her consulting experience, and how being a regular guest at bars led the way to her current profession. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats became the greats. So enjoy. Hello, my name is Vivian Pei. Uh, hi, Vivian. Thank you very much for finding the time to come here. Tell me, what is it that you do now so we can get a little bit of an understanding of who you are? I do a variety of things. I'm a cook. That's my main thing. And in that realm, I teach cooking. I write. I do consultancy for restaurants and bars. And in the last six, seven years, I've gotten very involved with the cocktail bar side of the business as well. And I've been judging cocktail competitions and helping out with bars. And in the last year or so, I've been working with World's 50 Best, looking after their Asia's best bars. What made you decide that cocktails was a thing for you? It really, really much started as a personal interest. Um, I like to drink cocktails. I figured that out a while ago. Apparently, I'm pretty good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking cocktails? Apparently, yeah. (laughs) There's a skill. (laughs) So um, part of that is drinking and not falling over. So that's part of the skill, I think. No, um, but I I do enjoy it. And I think I appreciate, because of my uh, culinary background, I very much appreciate flavors and ingredients, provenance. All this stuff is very interesting to me. Uh, The fact that a lot of bartenders now use culinary techniques as well so all that's really fascinating to me so how did you get into the fantastic world of fmb well my parents are own restaurants i grew up in the states they own restaurants in the states and i worked in them as a teenager but they didn't want me to continue that they were immigrants and they wanted me to go get what they call the proper job so i went to university made them happy with university got a proper job i worked around the world um paris tokyo singapore my first time then I went to London to do my uh, MBA at London Business School. I worked there a few more years and then just one day said, you know, my heart's not in it. It's not my passion. So I quit and then I just started doing food. What do you mean by started doing food? Um, I, at that age, uh, didn't want to go to culinary school. I thought I was too old. I didn't want to have uh, debt. I was 30 plus already. So I decided to just, first of all, from my flat in London, I taught cooking. I did catering. Uh, at first, just to friends, uh, then word of mouth. I grew, had a nice little business from that. And then I met a lady named Anne Willen who had a chateau in Burgundy. And she was writing a big cookbook called Country Cooking of France. And she also ran gourmet holiday programs out of her chateau. So I went to Burgundy every month to help her with that. So basically, I was living between London and Burgundy. Um, and I um, helped her with this book. Uh, I did editing research, recipe testing. And it's a wonderful volume. It won a couple of James Beard Awards. And then I helped her manage these holiday programs. So basically hosting guests who came in from overseas, you know, fairly wealthy guests. So they expected a certain level mm-hmm. of service and quality. So I did that and I, I'm fluent in French. So I translated, I did market tours. I um, interpreted for guest chefs who were doing demos and things like that. When did you pick up French? Uh, my first time in France when I went there uh, as a college students I, I and then I ended up not ever really going home <laughs> I just stayed <laughs> I just stayed so I, I was there for three years so that's where I picked up French but uh, in this case Anne was also very kind and introduced me to some very 
very amazing chef. So I got to do stages in uh, some Michelin star restaurants in Paris and in Burgundy. And that's really where my culinary training is from. I didn't go to culinary school. So I did everything I know uh, is on the job. Where is your family originally from? My mother's from Hong Kong and my dad's from northern China, from a province called Shandong, where Qingdao beer comes from. That's probably the most well-known thing. Yeah. Do they speak Cantonese? or? Mom speaks Cantonese, dad speaks Mandarin, and so I grew up with both of those in English. So, how was Burgundy for you? Beautiful. I mean, you know, I lived in a chateau. I had a, as, as someone who was a cook, we had a wonderful walled fruit and vegetable garden. Uh, we had a very grumpy old gardener named Monsieur <laughs> Milbert. Um, we would ask him for ingredients for our, because I had, I had to plan meals. We had lots of visitors. Uh, we had to plan meals, cook the meals. We'd ask him for ingredients, and he would never give you what you wanted. He would only give you what he wanted to give you. <laughs> he would give you what was ready, what was uh-huh. ready to be eaten. So then you have to go back and rewrite the menu. Uh, so it made me very uh, flexible and resourceful and creative. And, and also, but just the realization of how beautiful produce is when it's really, truly fresh, like hours old. That, that I don't know if I'll ever have that experience again to work with that kind of produce, but it was quite an experience. Did you like wine before getting to Burgundy? Or? I did, actually. So when I was 19 and I went to Paris, I was very lucky to fall in with a French family. I did a study there, and then I did an internship in a French company. And a lovely lady named Germaine took care of me at the, at the company, and she, she and I basically adopted each other. And she took me into her I call them still my French family. And she was, she's an amazing cook. Her husband had a fantastic wine cellar. And through them, I learned a lot about food and wine. They spoiled me, though, because every weekend I would visit, we would have champagne every time we'd go. And um, the first time I went to anyone else's house, they asked me what I wanted to drink. And I said, well, champagne, of course. And they no looked way. at me yeah. and they said, uh, uh, we don't have that. <laughs> you are just so champagne. I went back to them and I said, you guys, you know, other people don't drink champagne every weekend. Yeah. So it was, I was very spoiled. Yeah, you seem to love France. Like, it must have influenced you quite a lot in the... It did. You know, I I grew up in a place called St. Louis, Missouri, which is quite conservative. Um, And growing up uh, with an Asian face at the time I grew up there was was tough. And I think it's one of those odd situations where even though I lived there for a long time, I never felt like it was really home. I didn't feel 100% comfortable there. From St. Louis, I went to Paris, and Paris, I immediately felt at home. I, I call it my spiritual home. And so, although I know it gets a bad rap from people for various things, from people being snobby and all that, I, I can honestly say I've ne- really never had a bad experience in that regard. Uh, I felt very, very welcome from the beginning. Yeah. So, what do you think made you fall in love with it? Because Paris is a quite difficult place to fall in love with. I mean, it's a beautiful city, don't yeah, get me wrong. But yeah. just to live there, sometimes you hear a bit of, as you mentioned, a few yeah, other stories. Yeah, I think, right? I don't know. I think I went in with a really open mind and I was determined to learn French. So I went with an American university program. So there were about 15 of us, but I never hung out with the Americans. I was, we went to European school, so I was only with Europeans. I spoke, I tried to speak French as much as possible. And I think that helped. Uh, my attitude was, I'm here in France, I'm going to speak French. And I think the French people knew because I learned... You know, very early on that they're very, um, they appreciate titles. So, you know, when you see someone, you greet them properly. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, monsieur. You know, you start off with that. And then the next thing I learned was, in French, I said, I, my French isn't very good, but I'm I'm studying. So please, can you help me? Mm-hmm. And um, I think because of my Chinese, my accent was decent even early on. And so they would go, oh, no, but your French is really good. And so they were very, they opened up also. They were very uh, willing to help me. So I think just having that, you know, when you approach people the right way with the attitude that you're in their country and you should try and 
speak you know their language i think that already uh, gave me an advantage and then i think especially coming from the us which is you know a very young country still it's a, france is a country of art and culture and history and you know the culinary arts and all these things that i wasn't exposed to very much and you know i had a very romantic view of it uh and uh, you know let's be honest i had a french boyfriend also <laughs> that, that helped <laughs> Um, so, you know, all these things combined made me really, really fall in love with France, yeah. How long did you spend uh, in Paris? I was there three years. Three um, years. Burgundy, on and off, for... I was there half the month for about a year and a half. And then, after Paris, uh, you said you went to the... Tokyo. Tokyo. That's a bit of a jump. It what is a bit of a jump. <laughs> what made uh, you decide to go to Tokyo? The, when I went, when I finished my studies in Paris, I was determined to stay, so I got a job. I, I went and applied for any job I could get. And at that time, to get to give a young American a working visa was very tricky, but luckily I had my languages that were, were the thing that I think got me, uh, got me in the door. Um, I ended up working for a construction civil engineering company doing project management, which was, I had no experience. Um, But we had a lot of Japanese clients. We were doing big turnkey projects, golf courses, bridges, all sorts of crazy things. And I could see the huge cultural gap between France and Japan. And I thought, well, if I could go there and learn the language and learn more about it, that could help my business life. Um, also, I did do, in, when I was in high school, I did spend uh, six weeks on an exchange program in Japan. And I was already fascinated with uh -huh. it from then. So I had that as well. So um, I decided I was going to go to Tokyo and learn uh, learn Japanese. How did you go about it? Because it's not easy to get a visa, is it? No, so exactly. So I left France. I applied for a visa. I went back. That was the only time I went back home for a, a length of time. So I was back home in the end for about eight months, during which time I opened up a restaurant with my cousin. Uh, he wanted to open a restaurant without the old people, as he called it, and without our parents. Uh -huh. He wanted just me, him, and, and his sister. So the three of us opened this a Chinese restaurant in Iowa City, of all places. Tiny place, but it was very successful. So I had to open it, get it going, put everything in place. My visa took some time, but it eventually came through. I, I, part of it was going through a reputable language school and going through them. Yeah. So you went there with a student's visa? Yes, I did. And how long did you live in Japan for? In the end, it was three years also. Did You You don't seem to talk to, about Japan with as much love as you talk about uh Paris. Oh, um, no, I mean, I like Japan. It's a very different place, obviously. Um, I like Japan a lot. I mean, I really do. I try to get back every year. I, I love a lot about it. It's a very strange and wonderful place. <laughs> um, I think it's a culture that is so homogenous. It was, it was so homogenous for so long. There were no, you know, the, the boundaries were closed for so long that the borders that uh, it created a very interesting society. It's very insular. Um, I think it's gotten better, but it's still... It's an interesting place to navigate. It was harder for me to infiltrate Japanese, uh, to have Japanese friends, for example. Because of uh, the from a cultural perspective. Culture. And I think, you know, for example, you know, in Paris, you, you get invited to people's homes. There's a lot of house parties. And in Japan, people also live, you know, let's be practical about it. They live in very tiny places. They're not made to have visitors. So very rarely will you be invited to someone's home, for example. And even at work, I mean, you know, there's this culture of after work, you go and drink to the point where you, you fall over and there people can be quite honest but then the next day it's all back to the mm -hmm. previous day it's the same they even have a phrase called for it they say hone or tatemai hone means your true face tatemai is your social face so you know even from that perspective mm -hmm. they have two sides um, and you don't always get to see the true side 
What were the main challenges you had when you moved there? Did you yeah. move there by yourself? I did. Uh, well, language, I didn't know any. I mean, French, at least I knew a little French before I went. Jap- Japanese, I knew, you know, I knew from the song Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. That was it, right? So <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> that doesn't make you a street savvy person. No, it does not. <laughs> but um, I did have to find housing and... I'll tell you, and it was a very good school I went to also. It was an intense class. Um, but when you have to do things very practically, like get an apartment, get your phone line hooked up, get your electricity, get your utilities sorted. And because I didn't have much money, I had to live in a very Japanese neighborhood. It was a bit further out. So when these things uh, happen, you you learn quite quickly how to, how to function. Um, and I think, again, I was lucky to have the languages that I had growing up trilingual. After that, other languages aren't so difficult. I think okay. learning languages, I realize, is a pattern. Different languages have different patterns. You just, I know how to learn patterns. So, so for example, later on, I taught myself to code because it's another language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm teaching myself Spanish now. It's just, co- it's just patterns. After your uh, study, what did you start to do in Japan? Because you mentioned you studied for a year. Work for multinational. Uh, again. again, the people who, who are going to give me a visa. Mm-hmm. So it was really based around that. And that was more uh, channel management. And I had 13 markets, so I was traveling a lot. Um, How old were you at the time? I was 24. 24, so very young. 23, 24, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to move away from Japan? I was poached by the competitor. Okay. To set up their office in Singapore, which is why I moved to Singapore. Were you excited about moving to Singapore? or I didn't know much about it. I knew it from just a few mar- from market visits. I didn't know much about it. Um, I had friends who in Tokyo who said, oh, you're going to be very bored there. It's really small. But my attitude is always, you know, you can live anywhere for a year. You can do anything for a year. So I said, okay, well, let's go see what's happening. Uh, it was a good challenge. They gave me a great package. Let's be honest. Uh, there are monetary benefits to, 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 to the deal. Um, I had the whole expert package. Um, and at the age of, by then I was 26. I was very, you know, quite happy to have that. Mm-hmm. And how long how did that? you spend in Singapore? Uh, two and a bit years. And did you like it or? I liked it. I had a great time. You know, like I, I always think you can, whether you enjoy a place or not, is really up to you. So you have a strong food and beverage background. So I'm assuming that this is something that always stayed with you. It is. Yeah. So even though it wasn't my profession, it was always, I was always cooking. I was always entertaining. I was always uh, involved somehow, you know, reading about it, watching movie, whatever. It was always there. So what made you decide to leave uh, Singapore? Singapore. Well, uh, the job that I had, I realized was too big for me. Okay. I have to be very honest. It was, uh, it was. It, I didn't have enough experience. I, I did f- uh, French at university, so I didn't have a business background. Everything I learned did was learned on the job. Um, so I thought, if I want to continue in business, I need to improve my my knowledge. So I went to. I applied to London Business School. And so I went and did my MBA. Because you seem. The reason why I'm asking you that because you seem to have a blast everywhere you go. So you know there must be a reason why. I do. Well, I say I think it's attitude. I really do think it. Yeah, it's really up to you. Yeah, people can live in you know a, the most amazing place and and, and it gets and boring it, yeah. and hate it. So, mm-hmm. and it depends on their personal situation. Also, they could just be unhappy from something else, and that can reflect on you know the other parts of their life. But yeah, overall, I would say it's up to you. And also, you move quite a lot. So, mm-hmm. did you find it difficult to stabilize yourself in terms of like friends and family and things like that? Mm. No, it just I just had to get used to my parents who kept asking me, "Are you moving back? Are you coming back?" <laughs> um, friends, no, friends were uh, have never been too much of a problem. Again, I think it's if you're open to people, then you, you'll meet them. Yeah. How did you like London? 
I liked it a lot, uh, especially uh, the first couple years as a student. I mean, luckily I'd saved up a bunch of money, so because London at the time is is I mean it's still not cheap, but it was very expensive <laughs> coming from Singapore. It was a very different time then. The exchange rate was very different then. Um, but you know, being a student in London and you know, very vibrant place, lots of again, lots of art, culture, and history. Uh, and then I was in London Business School, which is an amazing place in the sense that. For example, in my class of 200 plus people, we had 55 nationalities. My study group of seven people, we had six nationalities. So you, they do it on purpose. They mix it up so that you have to work with people. You learn how to work with people who come from very different backgrounds, very different mindsets, and you have to make it work. And that's helped me a lot, I think, in, in other parts of my life as well. How long was your London experience? Eight years. Eight years? Yeah, I ended wow. up staying because um, just all the stuff that was going on. So at this point, you've completed your studies, mm-hmm. you are uh, good to go working in business, and you mm-hmm. s- it, this is the stage when you decide that this is not for you? Yeah. What made you switch? Um, I think once I had done the studies, I, I realized, okay, so I have the knowledge that I need to have, and I, w- I was given a very good opportunity. I worked for WPP, which is the biggest marketing group in the world, in a program that's that was basically like a fast-track program for MBA graduates. So I got to you know, have access to people at a very high level. I got to see a lot of projects. We moved from a different agency. Every year we were supposed to be in a different agency to learn about the business. And then at the end, we're supposed to land in, in a, your final place, wherever you, wherever you might decide and wherever you can negotiate. When it came time to land in a place, I realized, even though I'd had some very interesting experiences previously, there's no place really that I felt like I really wanted to be long-term. And I had to really look at myself and think about what I wanted to do. Um, and I think I realized, you know, I just didn't love it enough. Uh, there were a few other factors. London was, uh, the weather was, was not helping me. <laughs> I think that from yeah. October to March, I didn't see daylight. Uh, and I realized <laughs> I'm someone who needs light. <laughs> so when you're in an office all day, uh, it's, it's tough. And I think I realized office life, the corporate not life is thing. not for me. Um, food was always there, as I said before. And then I thought... Is there something I can do with this? You know, I think that's something that I could really be passionate about. And so, yeah, that's why I just said, you know, I think it's now or never. I can't wait any longer. But it's not an easy switch, is it? Not at all. You take a big hit financially. A massive huge, yeah. hit. Massive hit. And also just, you know, how do you get started in something like that? Part of it is, but ignorance is bliss. I just didn't realize that maybe there's a certain way to do something. I just said, I'm just going to do it my way. But sometimes that's the best way, right? Yes. Because yeah. if until you do it, you don't know how it works. Mm-hmm. So Correct. if you don't know, like if you don't, if you're not in it, if you don't try it, yeah. So what were the initial challenges that you had when you moved uh, into this industry? What was the first step that you? Well, first I just talked to friends. You know, friends had been asking me for a while, could I teach them to cook? Um, so I went, you know, like I said, I went to London Business School. A lot of people who are very career minded. So that means their domestic skills are very poor. Zero, okay. <laughs> but some of them very, very, you know, they realize you know that they would like to learn how to eat better and, and cook for themselves. And so they had been asking me for a while, can you teach me to cook? So I said, okay, I'm going to start with my own little network of people, which is a fairly good number of people, uh, and just started just email said, okay, I'm going to start cooking lessons. Uh, is there anything specific you'd like to learn? So just you know, do a little do a little market research, uh, and then just started from there. I, I printed out my recipes. I had in my you know, dining room table set up as a had little stations. You know, so I just really did it on my own dime and just fig- tried to figure it out all by myself. You know, we started few people each time, 
maybe six maximum. That's the only that's the maximum number I could take. And then they told other people. I mean, really word of mouth after that. How did you get to meet the person who eventually took you to Burgundy? Well, um, one of the guys that was in my program with me at WPP, uh, when I told him I was quitting and he said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I think I want to work in food. He said, you need to talk to my mother-in-law. It was his mother-in-law. Ann Willen is his mother-in-law. So he introduced me. So, you know, I, I think personal network is a very important part in li- thing in life. And London Business School certainly gave me that. So you moved to Burgundy. You learn uh, how to work with grumpy... French gardeners. Gardeners. Uh, I also, you know, so I, I got straight into the kitchen. We were cooking meals for guests. Um, but not only that, I was doing both front and front of house and back of house. So I was also hosting the guests when they arrived, getting them, you know, comfortable, taking them around. I was one of the, they, she had a trainee program that tended to be for much younger people. Um, but there are mainly Americans who were coming over, you know, free labor. Uh, the problem with them is they didn't speak French. They couldn't drive a stick shift. Uh, I could do all of those things, so I ended up doing a lot more. <laughs> so, yeah. I've never been to Burgundy, but French countryside is fantastic. It's beautiful. And, you know, beautiful wine country as well. So so after that, what happened? So then, um, so this book project, like I said, that was ongoing. So that went on for over a year. Uh, it was a massive project. Um, and during that time, I worked with her holiday programs and... Whenever I was there, even when there weren't the holiday programs, she had guests coming through all the time. I'd plan menus, I'd plan weekends where you had up to 30, 40 people staying at the chateau. Um, and then also during that time, I was able, like I said, to work in these amazing restaurants. Yeah. So I worked with a chef called Stéphane Collet, and he used to work for Jean Robuchon. He opened Jamin, Chef Mollet, and uh, he opened Jamin for Robuchon. And... Uh, I was actually very scared to go work for him in the beginning because I thought he might throw pots at my head and swear at me. Did he? No, he was amazing. He was really, really wonderful. And um, he taught me an enormous amount. So I walked into his restaurant the first time. It's called Les Hommes. It's in the 7th. And unfortunately, it is no more. But uh, he had a Michelin star. And when I walked in, it was him, his sous chef, and the dishwasher. And the three of them were turning out this amazing food. So they were very happy to have an extra pair of hands. I was very happy to work very hard, and I did. I worked 16-hour days. The incredible thing with him was the only thing we bought from the outside was bread. We made everything else, you know. Sides of pork and beef would come in. We'd break everything down, whole entire fish. We'd break it all down. We'd use everything of every bit. So I learned enormous amounts from him. He did a pastry stint at the Crayon as well. He did all his, you know, we did all our petit four. We did all our own ice creams, uh, as well as all the savories. So really, really, really learned tons from him. And then after that, later on, I also got to work with a chef in Burgundy. Uh, his name's called Patrick Gauthier, and he works for, uh, he has a two Michelin star restaurant called La Madeleine. That was also incredible. Shorter time and bigger, bigger venue, but uh, he was very much focused on Burgundian ingredients. Did you notice a shift in pace from you cooking almost like at an amateur level mm-hmm. to go to a fully fledged mission star well it was scary it was very scary <laughs> i still remember the first time the first day i walked in and chef mole showed me how to plate the one of the starters and um, he showed me he had me do it once and then he adjusted some things and then he said okay and then he let me go and uh, and I swear, the first time I said, Chef, can you please check this before I send it on to the dining room? I'm so scared to send this. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was a very, very steep learning curve. But I learned fast. And uh, like I said, I was up for the challenge. I was willing to work very, very hard. And 
And I think that was, you know, that was what was necessary at the time. And so it was a more fantastic experience. So at this point, uh, you are uh, still based in Burgundy. What, mm. At what stage have you decided to move on? Well, by then I had somehow in the middle, I got married. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we decided we wanted to have a family. And uh, I just didn't think London was the place for that. So we still had a business out in Singapore that was set up before I went back to London because uh, I had met him out here. We came back and I had two small people in quick succession. Okay. Which also, which was great, but also put it really in my mind an end to my uh, full-time career in the kitchen because the hours are just insane. Yeah, they're insane. And as much as I love it, uh, it wasn't fair to them. So after that, what I had to do was figure out how to work in F&B but not work full-time in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, things came along, came to me. And then I got commissioned to write a cookbook. So I wrote a cookbook. And that was real labor of love. I had worked on a book before, but not one where I'm actually, you know, the author. Mm -hmm. So that was serious, serious work because it was commissioned by the Parkway Cancer Center. So it was a cancer cookbook for cancer patients. And I had to do a a real deep dive into medical journals, uh, to do lots of research to learn about the disease. uh, And also, very importantly, how the various treatments affect the palate and what kind of nutritional requirements these people have. And also, you know, for me, in the end, no matter what, does it taste good? Because, you know, a lot of people don't have an appetite. You have to learn about that and to, to sometimes just to have um, nutrients that you get where you get a lot of bang for your buck because they may not have very big appetites. They only may only have a couple spoonfuls of food. Well, those couple spoonfuls better be full of nutrients. Uh, you know, so and 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 the other thing that was interesting was it was kind of a celebrity cookbook. So we approached chefs from around Singapore who kindly donated recipes. So we had a collection of recipes from from various people, from you know Janice Wong, uh, Travis Mastiero, uh, Willen Lau, um, Daniel Tay, Damien De Silva. So these all these you know a lot of great chefs. How long did it take you to write the book? Probably full on six months. Because I've never had the chance to write a book. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the challenges that you had, but there are a lot of things you need to consider, right? Like how long is a book going to be? How many recipes are you going to stick I mean, there? you have everyone. I mean, I was working with a with a company that had a lot of experience in editorial, so that was good. Uh, so they steered me in the right direction. Um, you have to have a very, very good editor. I think the editorial job is almost as important as the actual writing. What what is what stays in and what shouldn't go in. Um, you have important people like the indexer. I think these are things that people don't even think about. You know, especially when you have recipes and stuff like that, you want to be able to find it quickly. So the index is extremely important. Table of contents. You know, just all the different parts of a book that people take for granted. They all have to be there and done well. Um, photography was huge. Um, that was the first time I really started doing food, food styling. Uh, so I worked with one of the best photographers, I think, around in, in food photography. His name's Edmund Ho. Really fortunate um, to work with Edmund. And he's a lovely fellow as well. He's amazing. He helped us take yeah, some pictures. Yeah, I love him. Um, he's great. So I learned a lot from him. You know, but even things like deciding which recipes get pictures, for example, and how, like you say, how many pages. Yeah, it's a fascinating yeah, world. Lots of details. You mentioned consultancy. Did the book help you to achieve? Uh... Yes, but the consulting stuff really just was all through word of mouth. So I've been very lucky from that perspective. How much did you actually consult? Was it more like uh, menu refreshers or was it actually opening a venue? Uh, it, it, all of the above. It depended on the project. So, uh, for example, I do have a friend here, Min Chan. She, she opened up a place called Club Street Social that was very beloved and was open for, I think, seven years. And she sadly closed it uh, very recently. But yes, so when she opened, I was, you know, helping her with the menu and um, 
And that included not just doing recipes, but doing quality control and training. And with her, actually, I helped her also open another place called Pistola. And there, uh, my deal with her was that I would be there pretty much every day, every night for the first couple months, just to make sure the operations uh-huh, were uh-huh. in order. Um, I worked with groups like Coriander Leaf and one group where I was helping them open outlets because my, my skill set is varied. So I've done food styling, just food styling for people, or sometimes some people just need a few new recipes. Some of the bigger projects, I've even gone back to front of house and done training, front of house training. You know, of course, if you're doing a new menu, you have to do kitchen training and testing and you sort of mystery get mystery shoppers in there and test them and you know, all this kind of stuff. So there's, it's, there's loads of things you can do in it. It just depends on what the project is. You have had so much influence from uh, so many countries when it comes to cooking. Mm. How would you define your style of cuisine if you were to open your own restaurant? Honestly, my favorite thing is to make people happy. And through food is one very easy way to do that. In food and beverage, especially as a cook, it's fairly black and white. You make something, someone eats it. Do they like it or do they not like it? Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty much it, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I have these I have these crazy uh, Chinese New Year parties, which you, you've been yeah, to. Yeah, I um, mean, and, and, <laughs> lots and, of food. And people ask me why I do it. It's, you know, it's crazy. I cook for days. But it's really because I love the sound of people enjoying food, having fun. So my style... Uh, I can do tweezer food, but it's not my style. I'm not a tweezer person. Uh, I like sharing platters. I like hearty, comforting food. Uh, I couldn't tell you which cuisine because I, I really draw from everything. But food that makes people happy, food that pe- makes people feel comfortable and welcome. At what stage of uh, your uh, Singapore experience did you find that you were ever interested in cocktails? Um... Probably about halfway through. Well, I think really when uh, I was introduced to the guys from 28 Hong Kong Street, okay. so almost eight years ago, um, someone, a friend uh, brought me there. They weren't even really open yet. It was still sort of self-launch, and I think the bar wasn't quite finished yet. So that was my first real experience. Uh, I mean, there were a few places in Singapore then. There was, you know, there's still the Martini Bar at the Hyatt, bless them. You know, they're still doing their, their Martini Happy Hour and going strong. Um, so they were there, but... Um, they didn't have as much of an impact on me, I think. I think 28 was the first one that had a real impact on me. And I think they were very smart in the beginning with about uh, relying on the power of word of mouth, which actually is probably the most powerful if you do it right. Um, and then I also met the founders, uh, the guys who started it. And in particular, uh, one of the guys, Spencer Forhart, is like me. We're real nerds. Uh, we really get into information and we like to talk about lots of things. And uh, so... Fellow nerd to fellow nerd, we realized that, you know, there was a, a good friendship. And um, after about a year or so of me becoming a, being a regular, and I mean regular, like second home regular, uh, Spencer asked me to judge my first cocktail competition for Diplomatico. So that's where that all kicked off. Uh-huh. So you started as a guest and then you moved into a, a, a cocktail judge. Correct. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he first asked me, I, I was very skeptical I said but I'm not a bartender why would you ask me uh and he said well you're a cook he, he I mean he'd had my food by that point several times he said he said you know flavor <laughs> I was already in love with your dumplings <laughs> yeah he said you know flavor you understand balance you know what goes with what and, and you drink a good drink um so he said uh, I think you'd be a very good judge and you also come from a different perspective you have the consumer perspective you know which is important mm-hmm. how did your scores compare to bartender scores when you were judging competitions? Um, 
I think in the beginning, uh, there were probably there were some differences, probably as far as uh, technique. I probably wasn't as savvy about that. I think I've come a long way in that on that side. Um, presentation, perhaps, you know, but that also I think is very subjective. Um, but yeah, that was really sort of. So, how did you see the cocktail scene progressing in Singapore? Well, I I I call Twenty Eight the granddaddy of, of the cocktail bars. Uh, they really did something unique, and I think the fact that there was no marketing, there was no social media, there's no photos allowed. I don't know if you knew this, but at the time, no photos allowed at all. At the beginning of yeah, 20th. for the first few years, if one of the staff saw you pull out a camera or a, or your phone, immediately they would shut you down, saying, "Nope, what goes on in twenty eight stays in twenty eight. Uh, and I think that made it very, you know, mysterious and felt exclusive, and so people people always like that. Um, so that was one thing that really helped. And so you know, they of course ran a very good business. They have very good business people who started it, but they also knew that they needed help on the offside. So they brought in Michael Callahan, who was very experienced, put together a very good team. So just running a good bar, I think, is the first thing. And then, uh, not too long after, Marina Bay Sands came in. And I think that raised everything to a whole nother level. You think so? Yeah. This is the first person someone mentions uh, Marina Bay Sands. Yeah, does. yeah. Why do you think so? What happened when Marina Bay Sands came here is you, they, they brought with them celebrity restaurants. So you had celebrity chefs come in, Wolfgang Park and, and you know, Nancy Silverton. And, you know, you had some big ones. You had Santi, you had Tetsuya Wakuda. So when you have that kind of celebrity chef here, there's a lot more attention that is pulled to Singapore, a lot more eyes on Singapore. And some of these places had strong cocktail programs from the other markets. So um, I think these all sort of combined to, to raise just the level of quality, expectation, all this. Do you think Singapore is, okay, the leading cities in uh, Asia, mm-hmm. I, I, from what I've seen from mm-hmm. my travels so far, mm-hmm. when it comes to cocktails, are Hong Kong and Singapore. Mm-hmm. Do you think that at the time when MBS opened, mm-hmm. was Hong Kong as developed as uh, it is now? Oh, or no, was it no, still... no. I also think, no, I think I think Hong Kong is probably pretty pretty similar to Singapore. So you think they developed almost like yeah. at the same time? Yeah, I mean, maybe the, the Hong Kong friends will disagree with me. I think Singapore is a little bit ahead. Started yeah. a little bit earlier. Started a little bit earlier. A little bit earlier. But I think it's pretty close. Do you think that Hong Kong would be, because they have such a big uh, expert community there? It right? is, but you know, they ha- they've always had loads of bars, don't get me wrong. Lang Kwai Fong has been there forever, but they're very different quality of bars than what I consider to be a good cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. So, but the cool thing is there's a lot of homegrown talent. I mean, in both markets, you know, Hong Kong, you've got Antonio Lai, who's been there for a long time. I know, like, so, it's, Quinnery is almost like the 28 Hong Kong Street. Yeah, I think Kong. so. I think probably. Um, so... I think there's in, in all markets, there's going to be someone who kind of has to start the ball rolling, right? It has to be the catalyst. At this stage, you're uh, becoming a barfly, mm-hmm. especially 28. Mm-hmm. At what stage did the 50 best Asia start and what role did you have in that? Um, that's a lot more recent, but uh, the cocktail competition circuit, I guess you could call it, carried on and, and, and increased. Um, and with each one, you get more experience, of course, and... Um, quite funnily, I've also myself done a few guest shifts, you know, usually fundraisers and things like this. But, um, um, and I think, uh, after a while, I think a lot of the younger bartenders would actually ask me my opinion. Oh, I'm trying to get this flavor into a drink. What do you think? Do you think this will work? Um, so, you know, being someone who's older and has lived around the world and has been very lucky to eat and drink in a lot of different places, um, I think has been an advantage. 
Um, World's 50 Best Organization approached me about a little, little over a year ago. It started three years ago, did it? Yes, yes, yeah. That's right. I think I think that's right. And it was only really folded into the William Reed umbrella because William Reed is the organization behind all of the 50 yeah. Best. Um, I think they actually took Asia's 50 Best Bars under their wing maybe two years ago, I think. Um, so they approached me a little over a year ago um, and said that my name was put forth to them uh-huh. as someone who could potentially be a good person to be academy chair for, for the region. That's when they asked me, and and we talked about oh, what my ideas were, and uh, they agreed, and then off we went. And so it's been I've been doing that for a year and a bit. What do you think are the main benefits of having a thing like Fifty Best Asia? I think um, I think on a on a global scale, you know, when you have your world's Fifty Best bars, you're gonna have. I think actually Asia's done quite well in the, in the recent awards. Uh, I'm very proud of Singapore and and and. And other markets, I think we've made a very strong showing. Um, but if you have a, a region-specific award like this, I think it does give some of the smaller players a chance uh, to be recognized, and I think that's important. Um, people all need to be acknowledged uh, for their efforts, and um, some of them may never get on World's Fifty Best for various reasons, but they're very strong in their own right. And to have something like this, is, is, I think, is a is a nice thing. What do you think was the main motivation that uh, triggered the uh, 50 Best Asia? Do you think it was trying to get more recognition for this local market? Or was it more of an internal thing where people said, okay, let's create our own bubble? Well, it was a separate thing already. I think it was just a, another person who had started Asia's 50 Best Bars um, separately. And I think they just thought that the region needed to have its own system in place. And at that point, World's 50 Best was also, on the restaurant side, they were also starting to do regional awards so asia's 50 best restaurants and also latin america 50 best restaurants so i think they've realized that well the restaurants are getting their own and here's this person do asia's 50 best bars already that's when i think they brought the uh, bars under their wing do you think we'll see more local markets doing this for bars like 50 best usa or 50 best south america South America, possibly, they have the restaurant already. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on... you got to have some kind of scale, though. I mean, if there's only, only 20 bars, well, it's not that interesting, is it? Uh-huh. Um, I think what Asia has given, you know, as a region, has grown a lot in the last 10 years on that front. And if you look at the sheer number of bars now, we've, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and so there's the scale that you require, I think, to have what I consider to be a fair and good representation of bars. Um, Latin America, I don't know, honestly, the market at all. I, I, I couldn't say. Uh, I know there's some great bars there, but are there enough to have their own awards? That I don't know. I mean, you do have someone like Tron Young who, who started a few years back the bar, the bar Awards, which is a country-by-country basis. So that, again, I think pairs it down further. You have some that may not even feature on the Asia's 50 Best. But, again, they're getting recognition, at least in their own market, and I think that's also important. I'm a strong believer that the more recognition you give, mm-hmm. the better, because mm-hmm. it just motivates everybody. Correct. I, I remember Absolutely. My, yeah. I remember Absolutely. my first uh, Tales of the Cocktails events, and you know, when you're outside of it, it's quite difficult to understand it, but then when we were at the award ceremony and you see so many bars celebrating so many things, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's a very positive event for the industry. It is, it is, yeah. But one of the things that is reasonably controversial is the fact that we, by default, we need to put people... On a scale, right? So there's yes. a number one, number two, number yes. three, number yes. four. Yeah. How do you go about that process in order to make it as fair as possible? 
Well, I think that's one of the things. Um, my job is to curate the voter panel. And uh, when I was first approached, the voter panel that was given to me from the previous vote was, uh, I, I thought, not a fair representation of what needed to happen in order to get it, a, like you say, a fair a fair vote. Um, it was extremely bartender heavy, which, of course, you must have bartenders in the mix. But there are a few things I would say about that. One is you're very, you, you do have some bartenders who, of course, are at the top of their game and are able to travel a lot and have had a lot of experience that are on the panel. But I would also say that most bartenders, they work a lot. They don't get to travel very much. Uh, and it's the same for the restaurants. Is you get seven votes, of which only four can be in your own market. So three actually have to be outside of your market. You have had to have gone to those three in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. So if you're a bartender who is... Working full-time, I mean, it's probably not that easy for you to get out. So so that's one thing. I think a lot of bartenders may not have the perspective necessary to judge on a regional scale, number one. Number two, I mean, this is always going to come up, you know. There are going to be the friends who say, you vote for me, I'll vote for you. That's always going to happen in these, these kind of situations, I think. Um, but also, I think what happens is it disregards a couple of other important groups that need to be considered for a fair panel. Um and that was one of the things I had asked the organization as far as wanting to change the makeup of the voter panel. So hopefully uh, we're getting there slowly because, you know, it's, it's still over 200 voters and you can't change everyone at once. But um, of course, you must have your bartenders who are a part of the panel. But the, the other groups that I have trying to bring in, one is brand and media side. So you have your brand ambassadors and you also have media and I hope that both of those will be will try and be as objective as possible. And then the other, I would say, some somewhat forgotten group, but very important, is the consumer. These are the people that actually come to the venues. You know, they vote with their wallet. Um, luckily, there are a number of consumers that travel a lot. They go out a lot. Uh, they pay their own way. And those are the people that I'm looking for for the panel, what I call the super consumer. How do you go about that? Because it must be very difficult to locate a consumer that visits all those bars. And... Um, it's That's really through introduction. So Singapore market, I have a good grasp on that. Uh, Hong Kong, I also know a number of people who will fall into that. And then for the, some of the markets that maybe I don't get to as often or know as well, I do rely on my local contacts there. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is, I do have contacts in pretty much all the markets that I trust. Um, the other thing is uh, anonymity is the other requirement that I asked of the world's 50 best organization was that people who vote must remain anonymous and that wasn't so much the case before things went on on social media about voting so yeah. uh, i didn't think that was really uh, appropriate <laughs> so so that was one of the things I, I asked as a requirement you must remain anonymous i remember reading that of people saying like stating i'm a judge oh they would take pictures yeah. of, their, of the after they finished voting they take a picture of their screen saying, oh, I'm so honored to have been asked to vote. It is an honor. I'm not saying it's not an honor, but it's really not <laughs> very good form, I think, to tell the world about it. Yeah, it might be something that's helpful towards yeah. getting free yeah. as well, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cool. So where do you see the Singaporean market going? Do you think it's uh, getting a bit saturated or bad? I mean, y- you would think so, because there's a huge number of them now. Um there are still new concepts opening, and there's some very strong ones that have opened recently, your own being one of them. Um, but uh, 
what they don't, of course, tell you is with each new opening, there'll be a closure, right? So I guess it goes, in the end, it goes to the strongest survive. And I think that as long as, you know, people are creative and, and are motivated, there'll be new places. Uh, how many more? I couldn't say. I, I think there's still a little bit more room uh, in Singapore. Um, and you also, you know, Singapore is a transient place. There's always new people coming. So that's from both a consumer perspective, but also from the bar side. So, and I think as there's fresh blood coming in, there'll be new ideas, there'll be new customers. And now I think there's an attention on cocktail bars. There's, there's knowledge about it more. You know, people hear about it. Uh, things like Singapore Cocktail Festival, which is, has a lot of consumer elements uh, that helps to raise the profile of a lot of these places. And of course, you know, social media, word about those are all super important. Can't be ignored. Um, no, social media can't be ignored anymore. No. Yeah, no and now, if you, I, I honestly think that I've had a couple of people tell me, oh, I'm not very good at it. I said, you know what? You find someone who is. You yeah. Pay, you pay them. Because if you don't do it, it's like putting your head in the sand and thinking, oh, it'll blow fine. over. Yeah. It's like, no, it's not. You have to have it. Yeah. Whether I, you like it or not. You know, there is a spike in people who come to your bar and, and order drinks from a phone. It's unbelievable. Like, they're uninterested in the menu. They just literally say, I want this drink. They show you the picture. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, yes. I mean, I, I was uh, recently I was invited to Japan by Bacardi to judge the legacy final there. And afterwards, they asked me to give a talk to bartenders. And when I asked what they would like me to talk about, they said, well, anything you want. So I thought about it. And just coming from the world's 50 best perspective, uh, I ended up giving a talk about being the best, is it an art or is it science? And my, my main takeaways from that were that, number one, you just really have to run a good business first. The awards are nice. They're a nice thing to have. It's a bonus, of course. But if you just chase awards without thinking of the rest of your business, you're going to have problems. Um, and that same thing, but social media, as important as it is, it can't also be 100%. You can't make every single cocktail on your menu Instagrammable. I mean, that's no, just no, ridiculous. You absolutely. You have one. Maybe two max, but you have one that is, you know, and you know you're going to, that's going to be the one for the gram, right? That's fine. But everything else has to be very strong and be able to back it up. You visited a number of markets here in, in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Which one do you find the most exciting? Markets? You mean like countries? Countries, Oh, yeah. okay. Um, but by interesting, I mean, what is it you think? It's like almost the one to watch, right? It's like... One to watch. More uh, or less. Okay, yeah, one to I mean watch, yeah. right. One to watch. I think, um, well, I haven't been to Taipei in a while. It's on my list for this year, but I think Taipei is a lot going on. The food has always been very strong. Culinary scene has always been very strong. Um, they have an advantage over, Taipei has, Taiwan has an advantage over Singapore in that there's, they have natural resources. They have amazing produce <laughs> and ingredients that they grow there. Um, and, and the bar scene is, is really, really growing like crazy. Um, I think kale is an interesting market. Maybe, KL. yeah, not quite as advanced, I think, but there's some interesting things happen there. Um, Seoul is someplace that I, again, haven't been to in a while. I would like to go back this year. And Shanghai. So sort of North Asia are the ones that I'm looking at for this year. I was in KL recently. I find mm. it very interesting. Mm. And they have some big challenges there. Yes. Bars, because 60% of the population do not drink. So Yes, that's problematic, yes. So what advice would you give to a person who was at your stage? So you made some career choices. Mm-hmm. You're not happy with that, well, about them. You want to switch. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you know, the easy thing to say is just do it, right? Um, I, I think, of course, you have to look at your situation, your own personal <laughs> yeah. situation. Let's be realistic here. Three kids. Uh, if all, of, difficult, of all things, yeah. yeah, you've got four kids and two dogs <laughs> and a house, maybe it's not so easy. I understand that completely. But I think even then there are ways. Uh, I, I, I do think life is very short. I think we must make the most of it. And I think sheer will can get you a long way. Mm-hmm. can push you a long way. I mean, lots of people ask me how I do a lot of things, and I say, sometimes it's just because I do it, and I just charge, and, and you know, it may not always work, but I'm going to try. It's a thing you have to try. Um, given your personal situation, if somehow you can swing it, then I think you just have to yes, be think, brave and just go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah. think I think what scares a lot of people is money, right? Yeah. I have a very good friend of mine in the UK, and he's doing a job he hates, mm-hmm. and, you know, he always said to me, like, I would like to do something else, but hey, hold money. So I think people think they need more money than they need. You don't need much, honestly. I'll 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 be very very uh, straight here because I live in Singapore in a place which is very heavy on brand. They're very a lot of emphasis on designer goods and brands and uh, lots of silly what I call silly money out there. But let's if we dial it back down to what you need as a human being to survive. We don't need that much. Let's face it. I mean, already the fact that we're sitting in this room here, we're better off than 90% of the world's population. We have a place to sleep. We have clean water. We have food. We have some sort of income. You're already, you know, big advantage. So for if you have that kind of advantage and you don't take advantage of that, I think it's a shame. I think now, um, especially having small people, I people know me. I, I, I like how you call your kids small people. Small people, yeah. <laughs> They, um, as long as they're taken care of, then the, for me, honestly, people know me will, will, will see that, you know, I've, I'm not huge on fashion. Everyone likes to look nice, but I don't think you need to spend tons of money to do it. Oh. I wear my clothes till they have holes in them. It's okay. There's ways to hide that as well. I really don't care. I mean, for me, it's more important what I put in my body. I would rather spend money on ingredients, on good food, on good drink, and on experiences, right? So... Traveling is a big love of mine still, and I I have a resolution. I don't make too many New Year's resolutions, but the one thing I say to myself is every year, I have to go to at least one place new. It's getting increasingly difficult. No, for you, it's not. It? No. There's tons of places. <laughs> tons. Never. There will never. There'll always be places new to me, so, so that's not so hard. Um, so yeah, so I think money is always going to be a worry for people, but I think most of us, we prioritize a little bit too much. But I think we can get by with a lot less. Last question I ask to everyone. Mm-hmm. If you, what would be your very last drink? Very last drink? Yeah. A magnum of French champagne. <laughs> That's a very good one. <laughs> Vivian, thank you so much for your time. Thank it you. It was a pleasure Thanks talking to you. Thanks you too. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Vivian. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our hashtag how to classic cocktails video where every week we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.